You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. The Killer, which came out in 2023 and was directed by David Fincher. It stars Michael Fassbender, Charles Parnell, Sophie Charlotte, Carrie O'Malley, Arliss Howard, Sala Baker, Gabriel Polanco, and Tilda Swinton. The genre would be crime thriller. Stick to your plan. Trust no one. Stick to the plan. Forbid empathy. Stick to the plan. Anticipate. Don't improvise. Stick to your plan. Never yield an advantage. Stick to the plan. Fight only the battle you're paid to fight. Ask yourself, what's in it for me? Stick to the players. Empathy, weakness, vulnerability. This is what it takes if you want to succeed. Simple. So what if David Fincher made his first all-out thriller in more than a decade and nobody knew? And I don't care if its star, Fassbender, has drifted into virtual obscurity over the past five years after being everywhere for the previous five. And I don't care if entertainment focusing on the life of an assassin has itself become a tired trope, akin to shows about lawyers in the 90s or shows about forensics in the early 2000s. To me, the return of Fincher to pure, lean-mean genre is a big deal. And Fassbender's return to a juicy, big-time role is also a big deal. This is not an important story, nor do the stakes get particularly high, nor is there any real world-building, nor exposition, nor does this film really have anything to say. (laughs) I mean, besides some acidic, topical asides relating to Florida or Postmates from our protagonist, if you want to call him that. Forbid empathy. Please. The Killer is a simple, elegant ABC story told in six chapters about one isolated tactician's strange, unerotic journey from Paris to Santo Domingo to Chicago. I hear it's really hot. The most obvious comparison from any contemporary auteur's standpoint is that you could refer to it as Fincher's version of Haywire, that tight little action thriller starring Gina Carano, which Steven Soderbergh directed as a lark about 11 years ago. It also helps that Fassbender himself had a memorable role in that movie. Mallory, you're in way over your head. Think this through. You've been out of control since you've arrived. You need to cut hit it. With a very memorable fight scene. The script here was written by Andrew Kevin Walker in his first Fincher collaboration since writing the script for Seven. Now, the overall quality is not quite on the level of that movie, but that is raising the bar pretty high, to be fair. Actually, an even more apt comparison could be that this is Fincher's chillier version of an old-school revenge tale, a la John Wick, the first one, or Death Wish. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. It's not remotely wall-to-wall action, but there's enough, and it's executed quite well. As you would expect from any Fincher joint, all technical aspects are top flight, across the board. 
From fantastic shot composition from frequent collaborator DP Eric Messerschmidt, who worked with him on Gone Girl, to crack editing from another collaborator, Kirk Baxter, who won Oscars, actually, for his work on Fincher Films, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and The Social Network. For Mark Zuckerberg to Tyler and Cameron Michalvoss, December 10, 2003. This week has been pretty busy thus far with classes and work, so I think it's probably best to postpone the meeting. I'm also really busy tomorrow. Okay, anybody else feel like there's something up with this guy? The pacing is tight, even when allowing some breathing room to demonstrate just how, quote, patient our assassin needs to be on the job at times. And of course, this is for the most part the fast bender show as he delivers a sublime, very physical performance balancing the reserved nature of this character with an often droll appreciation for the absurdity of some situations that he finds himself in. Most of his dialogue is via narration, as there are minimal interactions with most other folks on screen. This is what it takes. My process is purely logistical. If I'm effective, it's because of one simple fact. I don't give a It's a pretty bare-bones cast, too. But there are some standouts, including Charles Parnell, who I would have liked more of, Carrie O'Malley with likely the most sympathetic character that our titular killer encounters, and, doing what she does best, Tilda Swinton, stealing the movie with the most dialogue-heavy scene as a fellow assassin. For what it's worth, I would never have involved your female friend. If there was any kind of criticism of this movie, it would be that there honestly is not that much meat on the bones from a character standpoint. You could make a case that there just is not much to latch onto here. Fassbender's unnamed protagonist, or antihero, or antagonist, however you want to call him, is just not someone you can particularly relate to nor empathize with. Still, overall, it just worked for me, resulting in one of the more gratifying in-theater experiences that I've had recently. This is what it takes if you want to succeed. This brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film. Knowing as little about this movie as I did walking into it, I have to say that one of the most pleasant surprises was the music. And not only am I referring to yet another moody, amorphous, kind of synth-based score from the dynamic duo of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who have scored every Fincher movie since The Social Network, which remains their high-water mark. I'm actually referring to Manchester's own The Smiths, mostly led by the brilliant guitarist Johnny Marr and lead vocalist Morrissey, who also played piano. This quartet just killed it with a dreamy alt-rock sound, releasing four fantastic albums over a five-year period back in the 80s. I've always loved these guys and their propensity for pulling off what few other bands could, which is a bit of a tonal whiplash between their lyrics and the music. 
They only stayed together as a band for about five years, though undoubtedly left their mark as one of the best bands from that era. And apparently, our eponymous killer himself is a huge fan of the Smiths as well, as we hear 11, count them, 11 songs from this band throughout the movie. Given that, my runner-up choice for best needle drop would be the song that we hear somewhat ironically over the end credits, which would be the lovely haunting There Is A Light That Never Goes Out from their 1986 album The Queen Is Dead. But for my first choice. So now we're about 15 minutes into the movie. Our lead character is providing chilly voiceover narration, describing his strategy as he takes the important final steps towards assassinating someone important, I think, in their gorgeous Paris apartment from an abandoned office window across the street. And as he's narrating, he also informs us that he works best when listening to music. I find music a useful distraction. A focus tool keeps the inner voice from wandering. So we cut to his iPod. Well, at least I think it's his iPod, which is where he has a very specific playlist featuring several songs from The Smiths. And what should that song be? Only my personal favorite from their catalog. A mid-tempo dirge loaded with layers of guitar, which has never really been used effectively as a needle drop in any movie up until this point. Yeah, for such an iconic song, it's kind of crazy that it took this long for a filmmaker to effectively use it in a movie. I am, of course, referring to How Soon Is Now from their 1985 album Meat Is Murder. We hear it cutting in and out from our killer's headphones as he lines up his shot for the first assassination of this movie, which does not go as planned. Just a killer, pun intended, blend of tense music and imagery. The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Oh boy, okay. Once again, as this is a Netflix release that was barely in theaters, I'm going to be a broken record on this one, sorry, because I've done this before in other reviews. I am at a loss as to why this did not get a full-on theatrical release. This is David fucking Fincher, who has directed several iconic movies over the past 30 years. Like a Scorsese or a Peel or a Nolan, Three directors who have really advocated for the in-theater experience. His films need to be seen on the big screen. Bottom line. And sorry, I don't care if it goes against Netflix's business model of building up billions in debt just to maintain the illusion to its stockholders that subscriptions are the only metric that matters. 
I mean, for one thing, the only way they're making real cash off of a $100 million plus production like this is through exhibition. And they pretty much just dumped this movie into a tiny release for one week at the end of October. Breathe. Breathe. Calm. Prepare to be excited. Just to give you an idea, I live in the Chicago area, one of the three biggest metro areas in the country, and this was hardly playing anywhere. Basically in four theaters scattered across the entire area for a week, and none of the major chains. And don't get me wrong, I had an absolute blast watching this in a two-thirds empty theater from classic cinemas with nice plush reclining seats and a bucket of popcorn. But the vast, vast majority of cinephiles and or avid Fincher fans who would have loved to have seen this on the big screen, they just have to wait to watch it on streaming. Positively shameful and wasteful. Trust no one. Fight only the battle you're paid to fight. My next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Every once in a while, you get to witness a killer, pun intended again, fight sequence at the movies. No, I'm not talking about quick cutting hits from one character to the other, mostly carried by sound design. I'm talking about a brutal, bone-crunching tete-a-tete, often in closed quarters, between two or three evenly matched bruisers. You can't always tell where it's going, but along the way, you feel every hit. I'm talking about the now legendary bathroom fight with Cruz and Cavill in Mission Impossible Fallout. The gnarly alley fight between Piper and David in recent episode They Live. Or, probably an all-timer, the extended kitchen fight in The Raid 2 between Iko Awai and Sisip Arif Rahman. Yeah. Well, roughly about halfway through this shindig, Fincher and crew treat us to one such fight, during the killer's excursion to Florida, no less. He tracks down a key assassin who has harmed someone he loves to that person's home surrounded by swamp, with one mean dog waiting in the backyard, whom he drugs with meat that has some meds implanted in it, of course. Once he is inside this large, ramshackle home, the killer starts to venture around. His plan is to execute this guy, and he thinks he hears him in the shower. As he walks closer and closer, most of this is seen in silhouette or shadow. The sound design is impeccable in this scene. And, wouldn't you expect it, the large guy sneaks up on him and gets the drop on him. And what results is a balls-out, every single type of weapon within reach is utilized, drag-out brawl between our live protagonist and his massive opponent, played by stuntman actor Sala Baker. And I mean everything is used, from TV antennas to cheese graters to chair legs. And the character who our killer is fighting, much bigger dude, by the way, well, he's referred to in the credits as the brute. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) And this brings me to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. This is just such a perfect melding of star and director. It's kind of surprising that they had never worked together before. Now, part of that is likely due to neither of these guys being particularly prolific over the past several years. Even though I would not actually call Fassbender's titular killer here remotely relatable or even particularly sympathetic, you still cannot take your eyes off of him. This is someone aspiring to be a master tactician, and even though he does not always live up to that, it's still a captivating performance. And when you pair that up with what many consider, myself included, to be one of the most exacting filmmakers out there right now, literally nothing you're seeing on screen during a Fincher joint is accidental, or even dare I say improvised. 
And that's okay, because when the director of Zodiac or the girl with the dragon tattoo is determined to tell you a tight little story about a morally ambiguous tactician on a mission, that is exactly what he does. For collaborating to deliver what might be my personal favorite, not the best, mind you, film of 2023 so far, David Fincher and Michael Fassbender are your co-MVPs. What was interesting for me was taking the experience from what we're doing on track and bringing it on set, especially with somebody like David who films very precisely and everything is you know, dealing in fractions in terms of how you deliver things and movement and exactly how the frame is occupied, if you will. My rating for The Killer would be four and a quarter stars out of five. Now, this is far from Fincher's best, most likely mid-tier as compared to his filmography, maybe right alongside previous episode Panic Room. Regardless, I was thoroughly entertained just being back in his twisted world again. And if you're looking to watch The Killer, it is currently streaming on Netflix. And that ends another precise review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Shut your mouth.